Thank you for coming and welcome. I want to um, talk a little bit about my topic today. I said, I decided a few weeks ago that we should talk about change. And I thought change is hard was a kind of fun um, way of expressing the fact that change is difficult and it always is something we have to see and happen in our worlds. But it isn't easy to accept it. Another, um, another possible top, uh, title for this would have been 500 years in 15 minutes. <laughs> because we are celebrating, or at least acknowledging today, something that happened 502 years ago on October 31st in a little town called Wittenberg, Germany. The Reformation, or at least what's acknowledged as the start of the Reformation. I want to give you a little context. The world of the early 1500s was quite different from today, but it was a time that was ripe for change. First of all, several things were going on that were really important politically. There was something called the Holy Roman Empire. It's roughly what's Germany now, parts of France, parts of Italy, that center part of Europe, but the, the jokesters among us would say it wasn't holy, it wasn't Roman, and it wasn't really an empire. It was a medieval concept that actually started after, or after Charlemagne. It was meant to be a, re, a rebuilding of the, whole, of the Roman Empire, except it was in a different place. There were electors who elected it, so it wasn't an empire, but it was built on a medieval model of Christendom as a single political entity, a mythical model which never really did happen, but it was the idea that Christendom was the political and spiritual foundation of life. Now, the other thing that was going on, or one other thing was that the papacy was not just a holy and uh, church entity, it was a temporal kingdom. There were large parts of Italy and at various times other parts of Europe that were actually under the political control of the papacy. And in fact, there, was a, there were two popes, Pope Alexander in the late 1400s and Pope Julius, who expanded the physical control of Italy in the papal states. Pope Julius II was actually called the warrior pope. And one of the things that was noted by Martin Luther was that he would ride through the city of Rome in a suit of armor. Not typically what we think of the popes. He also had a plan. His plan was to rebuild the old, neglected um, Basilica of St. Peter's. There was an old St. Peter's that had been in that site for hundreds of years, but it had been neglected, especially because the papacy had been divided. There were three popes at one point, actually, and there was a lot of political fighting going on about that. He wanted to replace it with the new St. Peter's Basilica, which is the one we have now. It also was coincidentally going to serve as a gigantic tomb for Pope Julius II and other popes. And it, of course, cost a lot of money. The construction was started in 1506, and it didn't finish until 120 years later in 1626. And if any of you have been to Rome, how many, how many of you have been to Rome? How many of you have seen St. Saint Peter's Basilica? It is a beautiful, amazing place but it cost a lot of money. How was that going to be paid for? 
The other thing that was changing was that the world was opening. Europeans had been busy discovering parts of the world that hadn't been known before. The Portuguese went around Africa. The Spanish, through, uh, through their sailing to the west, were busy conquering many parts of the Americas and making a new world, literally a new world. They had expelled the Moors from Spain and they were excited about their new power in Spain and Portugal and incredible wealth was flowing in there, but the wealth wasn't necessarily flowing to Rome. The, um, the, uh, the Turks were expanding, even though the Moors, the uh, Muslims had been expelled from Spain, they were ascendant in the eastern part of Europe. What is now the Balkans was completely controlled by the Turks, and the Turks were at the gates of Vienna in the early 1500s. And Christendom was terrified that the, more, that the Turks were going to conquer Europe. Medieval Christianity had the model that salvation was something that people had to earn. That is very different perhaps the way you think about salvation, but they thought about it as something you had to earn. You earned it by good works. God was a vengeful God. God was ready with a club to knock you down, to send you to hell, or if not to hell permanently, at least to this thing called purgatory, which was sort of a way station before, you, before it was decided whether you were gonna go up or gonna go down. And this was very medieval. The power of the church extended to deciding how you went up or down or stayed in the middle. The power of the church also extended over almost all life in Europe, including the home life, property, legal systems, marriage, and almost everything else. Now, in, about, or in the early 1500s, there was also a man named Martin Luther. He came from a little town in uh, Germany called Eisleben, and he was a good student. He didn't necessarily like school, but he was really smart and he went to school, although he described his early education in grammar, rhetoric, and logic uh, as comparable to purgatory and hell. <laughs> he went to the University of Erfurt where he got his master's degree and he described the university as a beer house and a whorehouse. So he saw that it wasn't perfect there. He was encouraged to study law. His father wanted him to be a lawyer because that was where the money was, because his father was a middle-class person. That, the middle class was rising in Europe at this time. But he very quickly gave that up. He didn't like the law. He went to philosophy. And even though he did not become a philosopher because he found that too dry, he went, or he had professors that helped him to see things such as suspicion of everything being suspicious of authority. Even the greatest thinkers had to be examined and compared with experience. So he grew up to be skeptical of authority. And he saw that there were limits to reason. He saw that God didn't come through reason. That's what his philosophy and law taught him. He saw that experience of God came through revelation. And therefore, Luther was attracted to scripture and theology. Now, one time he was coming through the woods and the old phrase is, it was a dark and stormy night. It was a stormy night and a lightning bolt came very close to Luther and struck and scared the heck out of him. And he at this point made a vow that he would become a monk because he was so glad to have survived. 
but he was a reluctant monk. And in fact, he told his friends when he went to the monastery in 1505, 1505, that you'll never see me again. This is the end of my life with you. So it was, he didn't really want to do this, but he made this vow that he felt he couldn't give up. Um, but he, while he was in the monastery, he became very fearful and possessed by fear of God, possessed by the fact that he could not see a way to earn his way to God, couldn't earn his way into heaven. He could never be good enough for God because God was always going to be judging. But one of his mentors in the monastery said, Martin, look at this passage, the passage in Romans. And I'm not gonna read the whole thing again, but there are a couple of phrases that are really important. Romans 3, 24 says, they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Note it, notice this, justified by grace. It doesn't say anything about what we have to do. It just says, God's grace is with you. And Luther saw this and said, I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to earn God's merit. I have got it because Jesus came and through God's grace, I'm part of God's kingdom. And in verse 28 it says, for we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works. Now this didn't fit very well with the current Catholic, um, the Western church's position. He left the monastery, he became a professor at a new college or a new university in Wittenberg, and he actually was a very popular professor. He had students flocking to his lectures because he was very, very good at studying. He read Greek and Latin and German, which was kind of unusual at that point. He learned Hebrew, and he gave these am amazing lectures on theology. But then, a few years after he came to the university, another guy came to town, a man named Johann Tetzel. Anybody know who Johann Tetzel was? He was a monk, and his job was to raise money to pay for St. Peter's Basilica. And he came into town, towns throughout Germany, with things like this. This is a facsimile of what was called an indulgence. And let me just read to you what it says. In Vollmacht aller Heiligen, oh, I better read it out of English. Um, with the authority of all saints and with mercy for you, I free you of all sins and crimes and excuse you from all punishments for 10 days, if you bought this. It's a get out of hell free card. Get out of purgatory. And you could buy them not just for yourself, but you could buy them for your relatives who died and that you were worried about suffering in purgatory. I'm gonna pass these around. These, um, these don't actually work. But that was what was being sold. And guess where the money was going? Half of the money was going directly to Rome to pay for St. Peter's Basilica. The other half was going to the local bishop who had tremendous debt, and he needed to pay them off. Why did the bishop have tremendous debt? Because at that time, it was really easy to open your wallet and fork a bunch of money out to the pope to buy a bishop, or buy a bishopship, or bishopric is the name of the word. Martin Luther, who'd suffered with sin an awful lot, said, wait a minute, this doesn't sound right. This seems really wrong to say, give me some money, and you're freed from all your sins. All you have to do is give me money and your soul will be saved. 
Literally, Johann Tessel said, when the money clinks in the bin, then the soul springs out of purgatory. <laughs> now, Luther wrote 95 propositions, 95 theses. They're basically proposals for debate. And I won't go through all 95 of them, but I'll give you a summary. He said, first of all, selling indulgences to finance the building of St. Peter's is, is wrong. He didn't say that it's wrong. He said, this is a, something that should be debated publicly. But it was pretty clear what his opinion was. And he said, the revenues of all Christendom are being sucked into this insatiable basilica. The Germans laugh at calling this the common treasure of Christendom. It was on the other side of the Alps. Before long, all the churches, palaces, walls, and bridges of Rome will be built out of our money. You hear a little bit of nationalism in there as well? It wasn't just um, against the purchase of this, it was against the purchase of us buying something for them. The second thing is, these indulgences effectively were, were fostered by the Pope as a way to get out of purgatory. And the question about whether purgatory exists or not is a whole other question. But he stated very bluntly, the Pope has no power over purgatory. And he also said that if the Pope does have power over purgatory, why doesn't the Pope just say, you can all get out of purgatory, you don't have to pay money for it. Or the Pope could pay for it out of his very, very large fortune. Imagine how this went over in Rome. Point number three, buying indulgences. And this is the most important point. Buying indulgences gives people a false sense of security and endangers their salvation. What's going on here? Luther suffered with sin, fought with it, and struggled it for years until he realized that's not the problem. The problem is not our sins. The problem is that we don't accept the grace that God gives us. And if you go to grace, then all of this stuff about money and indulgences becomes not just wrong, but a perversion of the whole message of Christ and can mislead people into thinking, I can do whatever I want. As long as I pay some money, I can go off drinking or whatever sin you would want to put out there because that will be okay. I'm saved by the money in the bin. Luther hated this and wrote the 95 Theses. Now, one thing I didn't mention about the late 50, early 1500s, there was a technology there, a new technology, the internet of the age. It was called the printing press. And the printing press had actually been developed about 50 or 60 years earlier, and lots of them had been made, and they were undersubscribed. In other words, there was excess capacity for printing. So when Luther got his 95 Theses, and they think that they actually posted them on the church door, the printers copied them and immediately ran them off on their presses and sent them all over. So Luther, Luther's ideas went very wide, very fast. They not only went throughout that little corner of Germany, but they went to Italy and France and England and elsewhere. His ideas spread like crazy. We have something like that today, except it's electronic, where there is electricity anyway. <laughs> so within a few months, Luther was famous and famous in a way that was not perfect because the Pope said, wait a minute, this isn't good. A couple of years later, after this happened, things didn't happen immediately in Europe at that time. A couple of years later, the Pope sent what was called a papal bull. It was basically saying, this is an official statement from the papacy. Luther, you are wrong. Renounce your writings or you will be excommunicated. Luther said, forget that. He took the papal bull and burned it in the square in Wittenberg. 
That didn't go over too well. And in early 1521, Luther was excommunicated. And that was very serious. That wasn't just you couldn't go to service. You couldn't get, you couldn't get um, the sacrament. That was you are a persona non grata in society. And Luther was eventually called to what was called uh, the city of Worms, Worms in German. And he was called to what's called a diet. A diet of worms, when I was a kid, was always one of those things that I thought Luther was forced to do because he wasn't paying attention. But the diet of worms was actually a parliament, like of the Rome, Holy Roman Empire. And at that point, he was asked again to recant. With the Holy Roman Empire, Charles V sitting there, and he said, I cannot do this. I cannot have my writings disavowed. I cannot change what I have said because it is the truth. And he basically said, here I stand, I can do no other. So that's a very Lutheran thing to do, a very German thing to do. <laughs> what happened? When he said that, for five days, the Diet tried to figure out, what are we gonna do with this guy? He's raising trouble. And finally, Charles V announced, Luther is banned. And banned at that point meant several things. First of all, no one could legally give him food or shelter. It was illegal to do anything for Martin Luther. And third, scariest, anybody could kill Luther if they got a hold of him without any penalty whatsoever. It's basically 007 license to kill, but only this one particular guy. On the way home, Luther was given safe passage and he was captured by a bunch of people. And those people took him to Wartburg Castle where he did several things. He wrote the New Testament in German. It had never been done before. He wrote new orders of service. And he was hidden for about a year there while he was giving these writings out. He was in contact with people in Wittenberg who were getting more and more radical. His ideas were spreading, and Luther actually had to come back to Wittenberg and try to calm things down. Nevertheless, it led to things like the Peasants' Rebellion, which may have killed 300,000 people, it led eventually to the Thirty Years' War, which occupied Europe and devastated much of Germany. Now, what does all this mean for today? Well, Luther believed in some things, and he explicitly said things like this. Of course, he said grace. It's grace, not works, that gets you into heaven. We have direct access to God. We don't need to go through the priest. We don't need to go through the pope. We don't need to go through the saints for God to hear us. That was radical and pretty scary to those in authority. The other thing was that he said there was a priesthood of all believers. In other words, everyone is a priest. He also believed that the only way that you could really understand what God wanted, infallibly, was to read the Bible, which meant that people had to be able to have access to the Bible. Well, coincidentally, the printing press was making the Bible possible, and he translated it into the local languages, German, and he was immediately emulated by people in England and other places who translated the Bible into other languages. And that was violently suppressed in some places. But it was a revolution in the idea of education because people needed to be educated to read the Bible. Priests at that time were largely uneducated. Many of them could not read the local language, much less Latin. And so he Luther created two things. The large catechism, which was an instruction manual for priests to become educated in religion, and the small catechism, which was meant for parents 
to teach their children in the home. The idea of teaching your children in the home was a new idea. The idea of education for all was a new idea. But he promoted these things, and those were really important changes. Perhaps our modern educational ideas of education for all came from that. Now, there were other things that happened, lots of things that you can read about on Wikipedia and, and all sorts of sites. If you want some fun looking at, at this, there's a website called old, oldlutheran.com, which will also sell you Martin Luther bobbleheads and other things. <laughs> but there was a reaction, of course. The Catholics didn't particularly like this. The Roman church was very threatened because this was spreading like wildfire. And it actually prompted over the next 150 years something called the Counter-Reformation, which wasn't just trying to suppress the Protestant Reformation, but it actually was reforming within the Catholic Church. So many of the things that Luther had pointed out, the practices of the church that were not so good, were actually recognized by the Roman Church and changed, although they didn't specifically say Luther was right. That also led to new orders, such as the Jesuits and, and the Carmelites, who were different kinds of religious orders. And it also emboldened and empowered the Roman Church to retake some of the territories that had become Protestant, including what's now France, Poland, Austria, and um, Bavaria. And these we think of as Catholic now because they became Catholic again because of the Counter-Reformation. Now Luther also introduced a new idea. He introduced the idea of priests being married. He encouraged his colleagues to get married, but he didn't want to get married at first. But there's a little story that after he returned to Wittenberg, he actually helped smuggle nuns out of their convent in herring barrels, literally. <laughs> and one of, those, one of those women was a woman named uh, Katerina von Barra, and she was uh, from an aristocratic family. But once she got out of the convent, she didn't have many options. She could either be um, a servant, or marry someone, or become a prostitute, none of which, um, or only one of them sounded good to her, and she aimed high and said, I want to marry that guy, the most famous, the best lecturer, the most popular man in Wittenberg. And she got him to marry her. But it took a lot of work because Luther was kind of hesitant. And Luther said, um, eventually, that his marriage would please his father, rile the pope, cause the angels to laugh, and the devils to weep. And he also said, if I can endure conflict with the devil, sin, and a bad conscience, then I can put up with the irritations of Katie Von Berra. So this is not a model for marriage that you might like, but it's important to note that Luther also had a theological reason for doing this. He said to himself that getting married himself would give testimony to his faith and demonstrate a final break with the old monastic way of doing things. It also allowed him to break his vow of chastity as a demonstration that the world was going to be different now. Now, Katie was a very capable woman. She was um, over 10 years, or she was 15 years his junior, and she got to manage the Augustinian cloister, which was given to them as a marriage gift. She managed the cattle raising and selling business. She managed the local brewery. She managed the home. She engaged with Luther in 
theological and other discussions. She managed all of the visitors that they had, the boarders, because they needed to pay their bills, and the visitors from all over Europe who came to have table talk with Luther. And in the meantime, she also uh, bore six children to Luther. So she was a busy person, and she contributed greatly to the idea of the modern marriage for clergy, because of course there was no model for clergy being married in Europe at this time. So Luther and his wife Katie made something new there. What does this mean for us today? Well, education. The idea that the church does not have to be um, subservient to one person who may or may not know everything. The idea that the churches can have their own people reading the Bible. I've heard many of my Catholic friends say, oh, we almost never read the Bible. But you have one in the pew here that you can pick up any time. Luther also influenced the German language, coincidentally. He wrote in the New Testament in a way that emphasized all the important words, and he capitalized them. And now the German language, which was standardized based on his writings, because he was the first major writer in German, it's standardized on his dialect, which is now called High German, and German always capitalizes the nouns because those were the important words. So he influenced the language. What does it mean for us today? Well, Luther opened the door to individual experience and study of the Bible. He questioned human authority and institutional authority in a way that we think is pretty normal today, but 500 years ago, oh my gosh, that was really tough to do. It started radical, rapid change, which he couldn't control. So we have to be careful about change, and he was more cautious than some of his radical supporters. But he worked for truth and scholarship, honesty and governance. He wasn't a completely new person, but he is a good model for us. He had a man with one foot in the Renaissance and one foot in the modern world, and he brought much of the modern world to us. So, what I'd like you to do on this Reformation Day is not celebrate Martin Luther, but celebrate the fact that change can happen. It isn't easy, it has un unexpected effects, it's hard, but it is something that our world needs. And I hope that you will work with your partners, your friends, your neighbors, your communities in our world to make sure that change works for all the good of humanity. Thank you.